Ben Garrod is an evolutionary biologist and broadcaster. He's currently Professor of Evolutionary Biology and Science Engagement at the University of East Anglia. His writing for children includes a series about dinosaurs and a wonderful personal account of the conservation of chimpanzees, the chimpanzee and me. His latest series for young readers, Extinct, is a groundbreaking look at mass extinction and the impact of this on the evolution of species. I was delighted to be able to dig a little deeper when Ben joined me in the reading corner recently. Now, your doctoral research was in chimpanzees, and you had previously written a book called Chimpanzee and Me. Tell us a little bit about those beginnings in this world and how you've moved to that to this later series that we're going to be discussing, which is about the mass extinctions on the planet Earth. Well, it's first of all, it's still very much my first love are chimpanzees, gorillas, orangutans, and their relatives, the, the, the rest of the primates. So by that, I mean monkeys, uh, apes, lemurs, and, and their relatives. Um, I think growing up, I was just fascinated when I learned that chimpanzees are my cousins. And I didn't quite get how or why or when or where. And that fascinated me as a kid. And very long story short, after my sixth form, my A-levels, I went to work in Madagascar and I saw lots of lemurs out there. And then I very luckily managed to get to the mainland Africa and ended up in Uganda. And I saw chimpanzees and they were loud and they were fighting. And there was a takeover bid between the big alpha male and a new one coming up through the ranks. And it was electric. And I came away absolutely in love with the idea of working with chimps did my first degree in animal behaviour. And very luckily, in my third year, my dream came true. I met my absolute hero, my science hero, Jane mm. Goodall, and told her what I was doing, my degree, and told her what I loved in terms of wildlife. And my absolute dream was one day to go back to Uganda. And sure enough, three months later, she managed to set up for me that I ended up working in northwest Uganda, running a huge project with wild chimpanzees. And I lived in a mud hut for several years in a jungle with a wonderful African team of researchers and, and trail cutters and field assistants. And our job was to follow chimpanzees, to protect them, to make sure they were safe, but also to work with local communities as well. So that kind of set me off on my path of, of working with primates. And I then went to Southeast Asia, to Indonesia, to work with orangutans afterwards. And then my PhD got a little bit more scientific and I actually started looking at monkeys. So I was looking at what drives evolution um, and what those first few steps are on the road or the journey from one species becoming another. I've completely not lost my love for monkeys, apes and their relatives at all. I'm just, I, I was described as like going to a buffet. If you eat the first thing and only have the first thing that you see, you're not taking advantage of the whole opportunity. And science for me is like that. So it's just at the moment I'm, I'm trying something new from the buffet. Tell us a little bit more now then about this series or, or the idea, the premise behind it. It's about mass extinction. Now you're going back into the path, the deep, deep past, and looking at extinction, it has huge relevance for us today as well. Anyway, I'd love to know more about your thinking and why you came up with this as a series of books. 
I think we need to know where we've come from in order to understand where we're going. And I think that's a big philosophy we should look at in life, not just scientifically, but, but overall. And I love my family tree. I love looking at history. I'm a real history buff. And I think by understanding the past can help us deal with the future sometimes and nowhere more so than, yeah, you might learn about World War One or two to understand politics, but let's go further back in time. Let's go hundreds of millions of years back to understand what's happened to life on Earth through these absolutely catastrophic events in order to maybe understand what might be happening now and what might be possible in order to, to, to avoid that. So yeah, I want to write a series that really explored these mass extinctions, not just the loss of one or two species, but the loss of each time at least 75% of life on Earth. And it's not always an asteroid striking. Some of these things take 20 million years to play out. I also want to play slightly with the idea that extinction isn't always bad. Extinction is the most creative force in nature for species. It drives new species. It forces them to adapt and to change. And if not, they drop off. So yes, extinction is terribly bad in the wrong situation, but actually it's a driving force behind evolution. So I kind of want to unwrap that as well, especially the time when we talk about climate anxiety and uh, a time when, when young people especially are really quite stressed and upset by this. I think it helps to put it into context. Every species that has ever lived will be subject to extinction one day. Nothing's immortal. The cockroaches will one day leave. Even tardigrades, these little tiny microscopic water bear that might be on the moon because of a weird accident, will one day go extinct. And so will we. And that's okay. But then the question is, when should we avoid extinction? What can we do to stop extinctions happening now? Um, So yeah, I want to do a series that optimistically and and, uh, naively try to tackle all these things in one handy little bite-sized series of books. So I Mm. I think I've done it, I hope at least. You did, you know, and I was fascinated to read, you know, how evolution and existence of trees actually created a mass extinction. Now, would we want a world without trees? No, I don't think we would. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. I loved also your epigraph in the first book where you say, because this is talking about the human impact, really, on extinction. In the end, we will conserve only what we love. We will love only what we understand. And we will understand only what we are taught. Why was that so important to you? So that was from a wonderful woman called Baba Diom. Put a little quote or epigraph in, in, in the start of the books, because partly it's to introduce young readers to that whole wide world of, of academics, of, of, of literary uh, giants and of, of these inspirational people, but also because I think it's key. If you, As we said a moment ago, if you don't understand where you're from and you don't understand the context in which you're living, both you as an individual but also as a species, then what hope have we got of working together to achieve the conservation goals and the biodiversity targets that we're trying to, trying to reach here? Mm-hmm. I also think that it's, inverted commas, it's not cool to learn it's not cool to be geeky. I'm a geek. I am the biggest geek that most of your listeners or watchers will ever, ever meet. And yet, being a geek, I have worked in almost every continent around the world. I've worked with Sir David Attenborough. I've worked with Jane Goodall. I have done the most amazing things. That's not the sort of thing most people think geeks do. But I think we should absolutely reclaim this idea of learning is bad or learning is not fun or important or, or cool. It is. But these little these little throwaway quotes that I put in there are really trying to empower us and remind us that, A, you've got to learn if you want to make a difference in the world, but also don't be ashamed if you're a bit geeky. Nothing wrong with that. 
it's a series of books and it's interesting you chose to write, write them as a series and not one big volume. Absolutely. So you're right. I could have written one big book that you needed a forklift truck to carry around and it wouldn't fit in your bag anywhere. But actually, I remember being a kid and loving this idea that you can just read a book under the covers at night or you can stick it in your backpack and read on the way to school or, or around granny and granddad's, whatever. I like the idea that something's pocket size and hand size. I want these books to be the edges ripped and torn. I want them to be worn. I want it to doodle in the, the margins. I like this handheld or pocket sized um, book idea. Um, and ultimately it makes it more affordable for people. So we've got three of them publishing very soon and there are another five coming. So take us through what each of the three books, the main extinction and the main idea. Each book has allowed itself to have a central character, a species or a group that was lost each time. So the first book goes back 443 million years to a time when we barely know what life was like. But we do know some of the things that are swimming around. This is when life had only really just started exploring and started kicking off. And one of the most complex organisms on the whole planet was this weird armoured little worm, three centimetre long little worm called hallucigenia and it's called hallucigenia because it was the weirdest thing that was on planet at the time and when scientists tried to describe it it was like they were hallucinating it was so unusual and so strange and what killed hallucigenia was massive climate change and i'm talking huge glaciers over most of the planet but something changed and caused huge ice sheets that completely changed the, both the temperature, it drained shallow seas and left or nowhere left for little animals like uh, hallucinogenia. But remember, in each of these mass extinctions, something survived. Otherwise, you and I wouldn't be here now, Nikki. So our ancestors were alive at that time. They looked completely different. They were little wiggly fish that were just swimming around above hallucinogenia. But by definition, they must have survived for us to be here. So you and me are the culmination of surviving all these mass extinctions. So that's my first one. The second one, we jump forward to 360 million years ago. And this is a time when still very little was on land. So it was all in the water. These first two or three books are very marine based. And at a time when things are just recovering, the last thing you would expect is this supersized predator that weighed over a ton that, could have, or that had one of the greatest bite forces in nature was suddenly on the scene. This is almost like you've given nature and imagination it's gone a little bit too silly it's designed or created something that's completely above what it needs because you don't need a super predator when there are very few other predators around when most things are about a meter long you don't need something almost the size of a bus swimming around and there we have Donclostius. it had this massive armored head we don't really know what the rest of the body looked like we think it looked a little bit like a shark and we think this massive fish just cruised around the world's oceans eating other fish. But we also know that it did eat other Dunkleosteus. So this is not only the world's first super predator, it's the world's first cannibal as well. So what made this animal so big? Why did it need to be there? And again, what killed it? Now, this is, I think, the weirdest mass extinction we've had. It was something on land that killed almost everything in the water. And it was the evolution of plants so as roots started to push through the bare rock, there was no soil at the time, but as roots started to push through the bare rock, these much larger bushes and trees eventually start to evolve over tens of millions of years. 
we saw a buildup of soil and a buildup of the minerals and nutrients in that soil, and they washed out into streams, into rivers, and ultimately into the seas and oceans around the world. And this led to an imbalance of nutrients, an imbalance of the minerals that we needed there. And if there's suddenly lots of food in the water for something to grab, the quickest thing that can grab that are small microscopic plants. And the best of those that can do that are things like algae. Now, suddenly you've got this massive bloom of algae around the world, which sounds great, but actually it starves the world's oceans of oxygen. So this, the world's first super predator was made extinct by microscopic mm. plants that had evolved on land. So it's that's another one. Um, we then jump ahead 252 million years ago to trilobites. And trilobites tells the scariest story. It's called the Great Dying. Now, when when the asteroid struck and got rid of T-Rex and, and most of the other dinosaurs, about 75% of life died. That's obviously, that's most of the planet. And when the first of these two, so with Hallucigenia and Uncleosteus, about 75, maybe 80% of life on Earth was lost. In the end, Permian, so this mass extinction that affected the trilobites, up to 96% of life on Earth gone. Nothing left, almost 4%. And that includes fungi and plants and animals and all the other groups that you can have out there. Only 4% of life was left. And it was caused by an area of what's now Siberia that opened up and became a huge field of volcanic activity. You're talking millions of square kilometres with lava that bubbled up from the earth for thousands of years and just physically created so much heat and changed the gaseous components of, of our environment that it changed and nearly killed life entirely. This was the closest that all life has ever come to becoming extinct. Um, wow. Yeah, here we are. We survived. We made yeah. it through. Life bounces back. And as they say in Jurassic Park, life finds a way. Um, and that's what's really nice about this. As bad as things get, life kind of finds a way through this and it sort of rebounds and does its thing and fills these these ecological gaps, really. So yeah, the first three books, very luckily, mm -hmm. explore very different types of mass extinction um, and each one has a very different impact as well. Mm -hmm. So this book focuses on the really small and weird and wonderful to the really successful to the absolute giants. And later on in the series, we go T-Rex, we go Megalodon, right through to an animal that's still alive today where there are only well, a handful left, but I don't want to, I don't want to give that one away too much. Just no, um, no. Big dramatic stories. Yeah. I mean, you've talked about this optimistically because you talk about the continuation of life and you are writing for a young audience. And so there must be a kind of perspective of writing about it in a way that doesn't terrorise them. I remember learning about the asteroid and the dinosaurs. And honestly, I, I was more frightened of that than anything. <laughs> Is that something that you had to think about or did you not worry too much? Well, I did a little bit, but I think we're more scared of the unknown. What I've tried to do as much as possible is to fill in those blanks, fill in those gaps. So yes, an asteroid struck, but how, how rare is that? How common is that? So I want to really look at what are the chances of that and really give the reader as much information as possible. Now, you've started on the, on the asteroid. Let's go with the asteroid it made a crater that was about 20 miles deep and 120 miles across. We think it was traveling about 40,000 kilometers per hour and came from over Scandinavia, over Britain, over the Atlantic, and then landed in uh, the water off, off Mexico. 
It landed in one of only 13% of the world's surface that had a particular mineral underneath that would have released the gases it did and had the... So it suddenly you put it into context and you realise just how small that chance is. Really rare. It's only ever happened once on our planet so far in its billions of years of existence. So uh, I'm probably okay next week. But you're right. I don't shy away from the reality here. And I have said in this book, in these books, that every species will go extinct, us included. We will go extinct. That's not, it's not Disney. I'm not telling you a fairy story here. Um, but equally, I'm not trying to scare you. It's not the Grimm's fairy tale. It's somewhere between the two here. It's, I want you to enjoy what you're reading, but I don't want you to go to bed thinking, oh my goodness, uh, mass extinction's coming. Nature is one big cycle of life and death. Things evolve and things die. I run a group of courses about reading for children in different subject disciplines, and we've just had one about reading science. I think we'll be talking about these books next time. <laughs> but one of the things that I love is that you do pull in. You cannot have the expertise yourself to write these books entirely from your own research and your own head. You don't have references, actually, but you do have Ask the Expert. Tell us a bit about that and the kind of thinking behind putting that in. So in the first book, I've got Dr. Duncan Murdoch. In the second is Dr. Tom Fletcher. And in the third is Dr. Anjana Katwa. And each of those, as you say, Nikki, is a really lovely opportunity to get another voice in. Because, yeah, some of these people have studied this particular area for, sometimes for decades. And part of it is me thinking, well, if they've done this, then they should be telling the audience this. They should be telling the reader about their topic. But also partly, again, it's going back to the idea that I want to showcase the different people involved in here. So across the series, I've got a whole range of different scientists and conservationists and museum curators and academics involved, partly to show again that this is who scientists are. But no, you're right. I didn't uh, reference these books in the same way that I would an academic piece of work because mm. the age group I'm focusing on as well it's a little bit too early for me to get into complex referencing however each of these books is as well referenced as one of my undergraduate theses mm. should be I'm reading journal articles um, and I'm looking at the original research being done by my friends and colleagues and some of my science heroes mm. to go into these books and the nice thing is science will change so if you read these in five or ten years time you'll think oh we've changed that now that's not because the books were rubbish it's because science is updating all the time and in a way I think that is a gentle way into referencing because one of the things that I'd be doing with young people is saying how do you think we know that and that opens up you know with the arts the expert it's just a gentle way in it won't be a full list of academic references but we've got somewhere to go and a line to begin to follow on that Absolutely. And I think you're right there. I think it's what I try and do is wherever possible is try and lift that lid and show what's behind the curtains a little bit. So occasionally I'll say we know this because scientists did A, B and C. I'd like to give a bit of a call out to the illustrator. Gabriel Huerta. So Gabriel and I worked together on one of my previous projects, uh, So You Think You Know About Dinosaurs. And we met on on social media. We met on Twitter. I just completely fell in love with his work. And the moment I pictured these books, I could only see Gabriel's work. He's a specialist illustrator. He's a paleo artist. So he focuses on extinct organisms. I thought, what better person to, to include here than, than, than Gabriel? And you're right, his... Oh, his illustrations are amazing. They really are. He spends so long on every single piece of work, making sure that, for example, in, in Hallucigenia, 
this tiny little worm that lived 400, 440 million years ago. He actually wants to make sure that not only is hallucinogenia absolutely accurate, but the type of sponges and corals that you had living underwater in that same place at that exact time are there as well. And we've got Duncan Osteus in, in, in this book, and it falls victim to mm-hmm. tiny microscopic plants. So how do we show that? How do we show this animal that's nearly always shown with its mouth open and huge shearing sets of bone rushing at you as a, as a, as a viewer? How do we show it just dead mm. the side of the water, killed by algae? So yeah. that, we've had lots of fun with that. But yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been an absolute pleasure to work with Gabriel on these books because also it's a big point of attraction as well. You want to read the books, but also, of course, you want to see and visualise what these animals these organisms were doing hundreds of millions of years ago and he's completely done that and in fact while you're there nikki there is one i just have to show you we were talking about trilobites and they're always in 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 uh, fossil shops and stalls and we had this idea i said i love star wars and i love these fossils i thought what if we can do something where we combine trilobites to be like a space scene so something that's completely out of star wars and gabriel came up with this wonderful piece it's a nighttime scene and you've got these trilobites swimming towards you with these huge giant squid that are just sat in the water sleeping or resting and that took us a long time to put that together and yet gabriel did it it's almost like he peered inside my brain and took that idea and said right here it is and mm. um, i think that's that's lovely as well and i think what he does is that with the accuracy that you you get into your text he also puts drama into the situation and so you you mentioned star wars there but a lot of the time i i thought i was looking at a really good illustration from some science fiction book or a fantasy setting because it had real drama um in the illustration um one other thing i wanted to really commend the use of pronunciation guides and glossaries young readers really need them they're also for adults as well. Something that I find when I talk to kids at shows especially is very often they do know how to say some of these incredibly complex words. And it's very often mum and dad or granny and granddad going, I don't know how to say that. So there's a little cheeky part of me that did that also for the adults as well. But you're right. I think there'd be nothing worse than to feel silly that you don't know how to say one of these one of these words here. And they are complex. And I've had to, I've even asked on Twitter and done little polls to ask how you pronounce some of these words, because I don't know some of them. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's something, again, going back to this idea that it's a way to empower readers. Because I, again, I don't want to take for granted that you know what I mean if I say biodiversity or ecology or some of the, the absolute throwaway comments that mm. I will use in these books. I want to explain them, to, again, to help students and young readers and anyone who's reading these books to feel their level of understanding uh, is, is just that, that little bit better. Mm. Um, Quick one here, slightly slightly off piece. Do you say Diplodocus or Diplodocus? That's always the one I have in my head, and that's the one I hate most because there's no and with any of these, there's no right way of saying. I say Diplodocus. Uh, very often, the American audience will say Diplodocus. It's Diplo, which means two, and Docus means uh, arch. So it's named from the uh, the arches under the vertebrae, the backbones in the tail area. So each one looks like it's got two coat hangers hanging underneath them for a certain section. So in my mind, it's Diplodocus. David Attenborough says Diplodocus. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't. It's more about having the confidence that it doesn't get in the way of you reading. Yeah. And so you don't balk when you see it and you yeah. can get on with the text. I mean, I think that's the main. Absolutely. 
I'd like to talk a little bit about how we structure and think about knowledge um, and how sometimes that can be quite compartmentalised. I mean, it's very evident to me reading these books how you have to draw on what might be thought of as a range of disciplinary knowledge on geology, on chemistry, on paleontology, on your evolutionary biological perspective. I'm just interested in a view on that and how winning people are to work together, whether people uh, come together more as bodies of scientists to explore specific um, aspects of knowledge. I think we're getting much better at that. Um, And even in my time as a scientist, I've noticed that we are much more willing to engage with different partners, different what we call stakeholders. I remember when I was doing my master's, I met a student who was doing a PhD, so the highest level of degree you can do. And they were working at ZSLs, the Zoological Society of London. And their background was from the London School of Economics. I remember thinking, why is there an economics student working with nature? It makes no sense to me. And yet they understand how how shifts in power work, how different uh, communities respond to different falls and fluctuations and, and increases in, in an economics perspective. And they can then try and put that into a, a biological perspective. And it made complete sense to me. I thought, wow, we've got economists working alongside biologists. And, and yet then I realised we do that all the time. So I work a lot with different charities and we have engineers and conservationists and historians and business people working together. But it works across science as well. And I think we're seeing more of that. Yes, I, I'm, I think it's, uh, it's, it was difficult in these books, actually, in some ways, because, as you said, there was some chemistry involved, and I'm not a chemist. So it involved me going away looking at some of these, uh, some of these equations that have, have uh, impacted us because of the, the gases released with some of these mass extinctions or some of the physics involved, some of the mechanics. So how do you understand how, how powerful megalodon can bite? Well, you've got to look at forces and, and biomechanics and, and different things there. So, yeah, there's a lot of this is not just my favourite area of research or my, my strong area. As you said, this is trying to look at different areas of science. And that's what science is. Mm-hmm. Science isn't just your particular area working on a particular project or problem. It's mm-hmm. the ability to tease all these things together, the people, the experience and the different areas of focus. Do you know, it's just been such a pleasure talking to you about these three books, the beginning of your series, The Story of Life on Earth Extinct. And I can't wait for the next books because I need to finish the story. You're right. It's one big story. So I hope that, that people and young readers can enjoy that journey throughout the throughout the history of Earth, really. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks, Matthew. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.